we, for those of you who are just joining with us today, we are in uh, the end, the conclusion of a message series that we've been calling Twisted, where we've been looking at some of the most commonly misused, misquoted, misunderstood verses in the Bible. And as we get started today, I wanted to ask you a question. Do you think this is true? Now, that's not the question. The question's still coming, all right? But you have to be honest, because these things only work if we're honest, really honest. How many of you would say that if you had more money, it would make life better? Be honest. Okay. That leads us to the most, or one of the most misquoted verses in the Bible, and it's this. Money is the root of all evil. That, this verse is incredibly well known, very commonly accepted, and a misquoted version of what the Bible actually says. But that's just the fact, so people don't bother themselves about the facts. Once you've got a good story, just keep telling it. It doesn't matter if it's true. But that's not what the Bible says. And a version of this comes up, and you've seen it maybe in restaurants or in bars. Sometimes they have a tip jar, and they have a sign on it, and it says, Money is the root of all evil. Free yourself of the evil. Leave us a tip. And I thought, that's a pretty creative way to go about saying that, right? But quite often when we say that money is the root of all evil, there's a story that goes along with it. And that story is, is where someone did something bad with money. Or, or money, money changed that person into a dark, uncaring shell of a human. Or, or the path was laid where money has led directly to corruption. And all of those things, they are most likely true. It's just that that's not what the verse is actually saying. Paul, who wrote that, he was writing to his young protege, Timothy. And you can find this if you want to follow along. First Timothy, his first letter to his buddy, Timothy. We're going to start at verse, or chapter 6, starting at verse 10. And this is where we jump right into it. For the what? Let's all say it aloud. It's not money, but the what? For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And if you're like most people, you're going to say, well, the good news is that isn't my problem, right? That's some other rich, greedy person who loves money, the Scrooge McDuck kind of character. But that's not me. How could it be? I don't love money. I don't have enough to love, right? It's somebody else's issue. And so how do we discern whether we actually love money or not? Well, I'm going to tell you something. It's going to surprise you, but hidden deep within the pages of, of, a, of an ancient historical document commonly known as the Bible, there actually is some guidance that you can use to look at this. And Solomon, one of the wisest people to ever live, he wrote some of these things down in a book called Ecclesiastes. We're going to go to chapter 5, verse 10. So this is the nice thing about having the notes on the screen or on your, your phone there. Uh, you, you don't have to keep jumping back and forth. But I want to make sure you have the references so you can go back and you can read them in context. So you can do that later as well. But today we're jumping straight over to Ecclesiastes 5. Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. It's almost like Solomon had decided they're going to need a definition. How will they know whether or not they love money? Let me help them out. And let me show them 
a way to think about this. And so I set you up slightly, a little bit at the beginning there, and I said if a little bit of money would make your life easier or better. And, but when I look at this definition, when I look at the way Solomon was looking at it, suddenly it makes me a little bit more uncomfortable about my own spiritual position. Whoever loves money never has enough. A little more would, would make it better. A little more would make me happier. Whoever loves money is never satisfied with their income. And the reason that this hits me close to home, and maybe more so me than you, but I remember when Cheryl and I first got married, and we were just starting out in a church, and people like to make sure people who are starting out in church know that they're just starting out in church, and so we made this much money, all right? And I knew a guy. I knew him, and he made this much money. And I thought at that point, oh, if I could just go from this to this, whoo, things would be better. That's all we'd ever need. And then one day, we're living in a different city, working at a different church. One child had mysteriously appeared, and we were making that much money. And the line suddenly, mysteriously shifted. And, and, and now I knew that, well, this much money would be all that I'd ever need, and that would be enough to pay for everything that I needed, and I'd never have to worry again. The answer to the question might be revealing about where your, your heart or my heart actually stands with money. The question is, how much do you need to be happy? How much do you need to be satisfied? How much do you need to feel secure? And virtually everyone I know would say, a little more. A little more. And there's a couple of people I know who would say, a lot more. A lot more is what it would take for me to feel that way. But whoever loves money never has enough. They're never satisfied with their income. And you say, well, I don't love it because that's just not who I am. But I do need it. I do need more money, right? And suddenly your love of uh, money is, is the root of all kinds of evil. Well, it, it may hit a little closer to home. It hits closer to home than many of us would first to like to acknowledge. And if you've been with us this last couple of, while, uh, couple of weeks as we've been talking about Twisted, we've talked about the idea of context, that we don't just grab a verse out of the middle and take it by itself. We try to read everything in context. We like to know who wrote it, when it was written, why it was written, what was the theme, what's the big picture of it, how does it relate to other scripture there. Um, and so we want to understand this in the context to where it was written as well. So here's some context for this verse. Paul, the guy who wrote it, was a traveling church planting machine. He would go somewhere for a while, plant a church, and then move on. But part of the plan to plant a church was to set up a leadership structure. So he tried to make sure there was a pastor and there were elders, so there was deacons, a leadership structure that would provide organization, management to keep that alive. And so over time, Paul was planting churches and he kept moving around, but he kept checking back with the church and then checking back with those leadership people that he had put in place. And he calls them his sons. They're not his biological children, but they're his sons in the faith. They're his protégés, his apprentices. And two of these guys that we know about are Timothy and Titus. And we know part of their stories from the book of Acts 
And then we also find out more in a couple of letters that are put together into what we group as the pastoral epistles. First and second Timothy and Titus. Those are pastoral epistles. And here Paul is talking to his buddy Timothy in first Timothy in chapter six. We're going to, um, in verse six is where we're going to start. Okay. And then we're going to keep going down. So he's writing to, to Timothy, trying to let him know what's going on. He says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Now, if there's a big theme in this teaching as we go forward in what Paul was writing and what we're going to talk about today, the, the big theme is not money. So, whew, good, we don't have to talk about money. Um, but the big theme really is godliness. So Paul says, but godliness is the goal. That's the focus. That's where we're going. That's the shoot that we're trying to make, all right? So godliness with contentment is great gain. Then he says, for we brought nothing into this world and we can take nothing out of it. And this is really, really, really easy to understand in our heads. But often our hearts don't process this as great truth. We separate our mind and our heart there. And we can argue all day long. Yeah, I know that I've never seen a hearse with a U-Haul behind it. People can't take stuff with them when they die. There was a wealthy man, old man, discovered that he got cancer. And he took a, a big briefcase and he filled it with money and he put it up in his attic. And his wife comes up to him and she says, why did you take your briefcase, fill it with money and put it in the attic? And he says, well, I know I'm going to die. And I want to be ready. So I put it in the attic so that on my way up, I can grab the briefcase and I'll go. So you guessed it, he dies. And uh, his wife goes upstairs to the attic, checks it out. And his briefcase full of money is still there. So she says, I told that old fool he should have put it in the basement and picked it up on his way down. <laughs> you can't take it with you. It stays here. Verse 8, Paul, he says something. It's profound. But we have food and clothing. And we will be content with that. Do you believe that could be you? Do you believe honestly that that's a way that you could live? Could you get your mind wrapped around a contentment that looks like that? If we have food and if we have clothing, Wi-Fi, Netflix, and a nice pair of Jimmy Choo's, food and clothing. Could I be content with just that? And one of the things Paul is trying to teach us, and it's hard because we are predisposed to not understand this. What he's trying to teach us is that our default, our natural, our normal, what surrounds us, that kind of way of thinking, is not the way of the kingdom. And he's trying to teach us what the kingdom is like. The kingdom that Jesus was trying to tell us about. The richest are not those who have the most, but those who need the least. Think about that. Let me say it again. The richest people are not those who have the most, but those who need the least. And all you have to do is go to another part of the world where they, don't, where they have much, much, much less than what we have. And you look around and suddenly... Suddenly you get disturbed because in many ways, those who have less seem to live with more. And there's a number of you who have traveled and you've been around and you know what this is like and you've seen it. You know what I'm talking about. And in that first experience, it's disturbing. It's, it's unsettling 
We don't know where the ground sits anymore. Everything that we have taken as a baseline, this is the way life always is, is flipped. And that's convicting to us. And it's unnerving. It seems like truth has been turned upside down. But there's Christians in developing nations who've got nothing that we look at. Like they got dirt floors and there's no electricity and there's no water, no toilets that work. And yet these people don't have any of the things that we take for granted on an everyday basis and yet they have joy. And, and yet they have peace. And somehow there's an assurance in the midst of the lack of everything that we need so much. And they provide us an insight. And that insight gives you the ability to say, the richest are not those who have the most. The richest are those who need the least. And this exposes for us both an opportunity and a problem. Discontentment can make a rich person poor. And contentment can make a poor person rich. Paul goes on in verse 9, he says, those who want to get rich, right? Those who want to get rich. Has anybody ever heard of 649? If I say that, it's not just a number. You know what I mean, right? 649, I'm just hoping. You know, maybe... Maybe, you never know. I want to keep my bases covered. There are those who want to get rich, and they fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. That takes us right to our verse. Verse 10, that was context. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered away from the faith, and they've pierced themselves with many griefs. Who signs up for piercing themselves with many griefs? We just don't do that. You don't have to raise your hand, but how many of you know someone like that? When, when that story comes out, they say they've pierced themselves with many griefs after chasing after money. You know a person, and the whole story comes to your mind. They chased it, and, and they walked away from God. They had a money fight with somebody that they loved, and they lost a beautiful, powerful friendship. They had tension over finances with someone in their family, and now they don't speak anymore, and they haven't spoken for years. The love of money can be a root of all types of evil. When we hear that, you can, you can kind of get to the place where you go, oh, yeah, money is bad. Money is bad. If we could just get rid of all the filthy lucre, we could be free from all that evil. But honestly, we have to recognize that having money is not bad. Loving money, on the other hand, well, that's more dangerous than we can usually get our minds around. And I want to talk this out because there's a real tension, especially a tension that's within the church. And we really want to love and serve God. What does that look like? And if we want to do that, we have to get this part right. Because this is a dominant theme as a people. And it's in our culture. And it's pervasive. We have to get this right. Jesus told us you can't serve both God and money. He didn't say you can't serve both God and power. He didn't say you can't serve both God and sex. Or God and popularity. Or whatever. He said you can't serve both God and money. Because for many, many people... The number one competitor for your heart, the thing that will distract you from the true riches that 
that God wants to give you will be money. And, and, and if we don't sort that out, then we can't get this right. And if we can't get this right, then we can't live within the world that Jesus was opening up to us that's full of peace. We will be forever without peace because we haven't settled this issue. And in many parts of the church world, this comes up and we have different kinds of discussions. And it kind of goes to two extremes. There's the prosperity gospel and then there's the poverty gospel. And they're both extremes. The prosperity gospel is the belief that if I'm godly, if I have enough faith, if I give enough, then God has to make me rich. And on the other side, we have what's known as the poverty gospel. And that's if you're really righteous, then you're going to be poor. There's something inherently godly about poverty. And if you really love Jesus, you're not going to have anything. And then there's this sense that if you have something, then you're unrighteous or you're ungodly because of that thing. And it's a misunderstanding of what Scripture says all over the place. But in the Old Testament, if we go back to Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 18, Moses is teaching the people again, trying to get them to understand. But remember the Lord your God. Keep your mind focused on him. Stay connected with him. Be in relationship with him. Remember the Lord your God. For it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. But God's not going to be highlighted giving you the ability to do something wrong. With wealth, you might be able to help a lot of people. You might be able to bring joy. You might be able to bring resource to people who are in desperate need. We've got to be careful not to go off into the ditches. Well, if I'm godly, godliness is indicated by the blessing of God. And if you're not blessed materially, you're not godly. Or if I'm godly, I, I, I've forsaken all those things that cause distraction. I've got to be poor. And if you're not poor, then you're not godly. Both of those are misunderstandings of the truth. That's why when we recognize, we finally recognize and commit, I am blessed. We don't have to apologize for the blessings of God, but we maximize the blessings of God. We choose to be part in partnership with God as he goes forward. And we understand that we are blessed to be a blessing to all nations. That was the way God described it at the very beginning. Verse 17, Paul kind of gets up in our business here, and he comes a little harder. He says, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is it's just so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. For years when I read that verse, I just ran right on by it. Why? Because I didn't see myself as rich. Rich is somebody else. But I like this idea of this verse because somebody, somebody needs to talk to those rich folk. Somebody needs to put them in line, right? Set them straight. And that usually means make them give me free stuff. That's where I am. That's the way I live. That's been my story, right? But where I am, this is rich. But I don't feel rich. But when I read this within a global context, that it says command those who are rich 
in this present world, well, I don't know about you, but, but the average person listening today or online has hundreds of dollars of technology in their pocket or their purse. That's years worth of wages for half our planet. If that's you, you're rich. Most of us have access to some sort of transportation. If you own your own vehicle, that puts you in the top 9% of the wealthiest people in the world today. Oh, I don't like stats like that. Those ones try to make us all equal, and we're not, right? Many of you who have your own car that puts you in the top 9% of the world, you will drive past seven or eight different restaurants to get to your special restaurant. And then you walk in. And you look at everything on the menu and you say, I just can't decide what to get. But you finally do. And someone comes along and they take the order. They, they ask you, what would you like to eat? And you say, this is what I want to eat. And then they go away and they go to somebody else who's going to make the food for you. And they give it back to the first person and they're going to bring it out to you. And as they come, you're going to remember that this took 11 minutes. I've been sitting here waiting for 11 minutes while you did this for me bringing the food that I didn't really know what to order at the first place. And then um, you, you get back out after you leave the restaurant into your top 10% of the world car, and you drive it, not all of you, but many of you, you drive your car to its very own house. We have a house for cars here. We call them garages. And then you go inside to your climate-controlled living space, and you, you come in and you, you adjust the air conditioning a little bit because we had a bit of a hot flash this week. Or, or you need to, you need to, to crank it up a little bit because there's a bit of a chill. And we, we do that without thinking. And then you go to another room in your house where you go to a toilet and it collects all of your personal waste and it removes it so that you don't have to deal with it at all. And then you, you, you sit down and you watch your flat screen there and you stream your movies and you, you use your handheld device at the same time. All at the same time you can do these things. And, and then you go up... Um, to your, to your room, and you go to a closet, and it's not that you have a closet, it's that you've got a walk-in closet, and you can walk into your closet, and then some of you even have a two-story closet. It's a double-decker. You've got stuff on the bottom, and you've got stuff on the top, and you can walk along this wall-to-wall -wall thing with your hand and all the fabric, and you go, oh my goodness, I just don't have a thing to wear. And that's the way we live, and we don't, we don't ever think about it. You're rich. I'm rich. You, you, you don't have to apologize for it, but you do need to understand that you have been blessed in a physical way beyond what many in the world would have. You don't apologize for it. You maximize it. We are blessed. This is part of your identity to now understand that as you live where you go, you are blessed. We didn't deserve it. We just, we just got born into it. And you could have been born anywhere and things could have been really, really different. But somehow in the midst of it all, we have discontentment. And discontentment makes rich people poor. Contentment can make anybody rich. And we have to get this right as the people of Jesus. So let's read this verse again, and this time, read it as if God is speaking to us, because God is speaking to us. He says, command those who are rich in this present world. Who are the people who are rich in this present world? Well, we qualify. That's us. That's me. 
That's you. We're rich. So command those people not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put our hope in God. Not in wealth, but in God. Not in money, but in God. Not in things, but in God. Not in this world, but in eternity. Put their hope not in wealth. Put it in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them not to put their hope in wealth, but to put their hope in God. Why do we tend to put our hope in wealth? Well, when I ask you, would a little bit more make your life easier or better, it's pretty easy to just without reservation say, of course it would. Why? Because money promises us what only God can provide. You cannot serve both God and money, and we don't feel like we're serving money. We feel like it serves us. But serving God means I have to submit my will to him. I want to serve money because it makes me feel like I'm in control. I can do what I want, and I like that. But money promises things. Money promises that if you have enough, you'll be happy. How much do you need to be happy? A little more. A little bit more. I thought that would do, but it doesn't. I need a little bit more. Happiness, it also promises to provide us security. If I finally get that car paid off, I'm going to feel a lot better. A lot of the stress is going to go right down. I just need a little bit more. When I finally get that credit card paid off, and when I get X amount of dollars in the bank, I'm just going to, I'm going to feel the, the level go down. I just need a little bit more. Happiness, security, significance. If I've got enough, then I'm all that, right? Because when you drive up to a party in your broken down jalopy that backfires as you get out, you feel embarrassed. But when you get out of a new one with that new car smell, and you get out with the right purse, and you've got the right glasses, you've got your designer jeans on, and you walk out, you feel like you're all that, right? Money provides the illusion. Money promises to provide what only God can truly provide. And when we really think that we need more money to be happy or satisfied or secure, we are deceived. We believe that money provides happiness, satisfaction, and security. And it cannot. No matter how big your union is, it cannot provide those things. And then you realize that we're under the power of money. We are living under the influence and shouldn't be driving. We're living under the influence of money. And money will not meet our deepest needs. Jesus meets our deepest needs. And when you don't have a lot of Jesus, <coughs> when your connection to Jesus is weak and sporadic, it goes in and out, money looks really good. I need more. But when you have more Jesus, when that connection jumps to high fidelity, when you got a steady four or five bars, then he is transforming you by the renewing of your mind. And then you can be content with what you have. Godliness with contentment is great gain. And that gain so often is the squashing of the need impulse. 
I need it. Godliness subjugates discontentment. Godliness um, captures and it, and it brings envy under the control of the Holy Spirit. We take every thought captive. Remember, we don't have to be held prisoner by these thoughts and these desires. And I'm here to tell you today that many of you are searching for something that will never, ever satisfy. You will never, ever have enough. And what you need is more Jesus, more of his grace, more of his peace, more of his assurance, more of his presence, more of his power in your life, more of his calling, more of his empowering, more of his direction, more of his discernment, more of his spirit. He is your everything. He's your sustainer. He's the bread of life. He's the living water. He is your rock. He's your assurance. And suddenly, when you have more of him, then you're not craving everything else. And sometimes, when you have more of him, when you're in a place of deep connection in the center of his will, sometimes, sometimes he starts to give you more of everything else and suddenly you recognize that more of everything else isn't just for me. I can enjoy it and be blessed by it. But since it came from him, then I use it to do what he asked me to do. He gave it to me to be a blessing to this world. I may have it, but it doesn't have me. I may have it, but I don't love it. I may have it, but I don't have to have it. Just because it was given to me doesn't mean that it is mine. And I remember in November, we were staring down some big bills for the renovations. We still are. Please be faithful. We, we got a surprise gift. We didn't expect it. It came from people who don't attend the church. They came once, but they decided that they wanted to support us. They want to support you in what we are building. And they gave us $6,000. And I was immediately hit with the fact that we have to give a chunk of that away right away. And we needed to share it before we got to thinking that it was ours and that it was for us. And your Steercom. They were right on it. They were totally in favor. And we sent money off right away to our international workers, to, to Derek and Bonnie and Burnett in Thailand, who are actually just getting ready to come home very soon, to Lisa Brown, who was just setting up to head out on her new deployment. And we sent money to our, our partners, the Jesus Network, who works with Muslims and new immigrants in the Flemington Park area and the um, Thorncliffe Park area. We sent money to Toronto Alliance Church, which, which is working in the heart of downtown Toronto, being a light there. And we made a declaration to each other and to God that we would be faithful with the money that we were entrusted with. We vowed that just because it came to us, we wouldn't be tricked into believing that it was just for us. We felt then, and we continue to feel it now, that we did the right thing. We are in partnership with God, and so we continue to trust him to provide for us beyond all that we can ask or even imagine. And in six years, this church has never lacked for anything that it needed. Our God provides, and sometimes he uses us to provide to others. And this, this relationship connects us, and it draws us continually into one. And I want to paint the picture before you of the freedom to have and to release. To, don't be owned by your stuff and by your money. Use it to declare your trust in God. 
Verse 18, this is what we're being challenged with. Command those who are rich, remember that's us. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of life that is truly life. The life that is truly life. Jesus said when he came that he came to give us life and life abundant. The life that you've been searching for. The life that you cannot find in material things because they never, ever satisfy long term. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and willing to share and to find the life that is really life. So that's the Bible side. What I want to do now is I want to tell you a little bit about my journey with this because it's not all pretty. I grew up, not because somebody did this to me, this is just the way I grew up, with a poverty mindset, a scarcity mindset that everything runs out. Rich people probably did something wrong. There is no wealth without crime. That's what I believed. And I grew up afraid of not having enough. And one day, the world's going to fall apart and I'm not going to have enough. I need to prepare enough. And it was not early enough on, and it has been a process, but as my mind is being transformed, and as I am growing in my like-mindedness to Christ, my practice has changed. It's not just my mindset that's changed, but my practice has changed. And increasingly, I live with an abundance mindset, no longer a scarcity mindset. And early on, I heard messages about people who were going to worship God by ensuring that there was a tithe. And I did my homework. I studied it. And the idea is before the law, we give 10% back to God as, as worship, and we do it through the church. And that idea is confirmed in Matthew 23, 23 by Jesus. And, and suddenly I was like, oh man, I see it. It's in front of me. There is no way that I want to do that. Why? Because I loved and I trusted money. I wouldn't have said that about myself. I'm saying that about myself now. I needed it. And over time, I began to be a little bit more open-handed. I let a little bit more leave me. Still, mostly, unwillingly. But I did become convinced that it was right. And I wanted to be obedient before I felt like being obedient. And it helped me. I found that my life balanced better. I found a greater ease in my relationship with Jesus, but I also started to realize how much I continue to hold back. And the next thing that opened up a door for me sometime later, someone said, and I don't remember who it was, I wish I did, I'd like to thank them, it's not how much you give, it's about how much you hold. It's not about allowing God to take 10% from my clawing, grabbing hand. But if he has given me all that I have, and he has promised to provide for me as I go forward, and if all I have been given, I have been given to be on his mission, then the question changes. The question is not how much do I, um, the question is now, how much do I keep for myself of the resources that have been given to me to be about God's mission. That question, it sunk in. And it changed me. It changed my living and spending pattern. And it's scary. And it inconveniences me. 
Yes, that's the point. It forces me to humble myself before God and choose to put him first. It also forces me to look straight into the eyes of my fear called scarcity and declare that I trust Jesus with it all. If he fails me, I will fall. Horribly. Publicly, financially, embarrassingly. And that scared me. Lots. That was years ago now. He has never failed me. He just keeps blessing me. And I've got story after story after story of his provision and blessing in my life. There's the story of the the day the church bank account was overdrawn and I got a call from the bank that I had to rush in one morning to take money out of my bank account to avoid closing the whole thing down. That meant no cashing expense checks, no cashing payroll checks, and the money that I needed was already out of my own bank. And I met a guy that day for lunch, a guy who used to go to church here, and he said, do you want my help in trying to shut the whole church down? And I thought about it. thought about it for a while. And then I said, no way. I'm nervous today. And I'm discouraged today. But I'm not giving up. I'm going to keep trusting that God is going to work here. And two days later, I got a letter in the mail, which means that God was at work before I knew that there was a problem. A letter wherein a guy that I don't know particularly well said, we really appreciate what you're doing. Hope this helps. And he had included a check in there that covered the entire amount of the overdraft that I had paid. It covered the expense checks that were waiting to go. It covered the payroll checks that were coming. And it put us a little something something into the bank so that we weren't on the edge. And there's a story of the family that we met in a restaurant who just happened to have four garbage bags full of brand new clothes for their grandkids who just weren't able to come and visit. Would we like them? And we received so much from them that we had to distribute it to two or three different families to not overwhelm ourselves with how much was there. There's a story of the high school girl that I gave $100 that I felt that I didn't have so that she could go on a missions trip. And she did her fundraising and she raised more than she needed. She'd already set aside money that she had earned herself to pay for the trip, but she no longer needed it because her fundraising, all of the bills were paid. And so she wanted me to have that money so I could plant this church into one. And so she gave me $1,000 cash. Since then, I've made sure that I've given all of that money away to other people who are trying to go in a missions kind of environment. There's a story of a pastor who called me up somewhat out of the blue and ended up asking me if it would be okay if he gifted me a church building on Main Street, Stouffville. There's a story of a man who wanted me to help him out to get right with God because he was convicted by God that he'd been withholding money from God and he wanted to get that straightened out and he wanted to do it quickly and he wanted me to help him. He wanted me to take the money that he had and use it for God. So he gave me $22,000. I'm telling you, these stories, they're real. And I would say, God will never give you a suitcase full of money. 
That'll never happen. He'll bless us with good feelings. And we'll all be happy. $22,000 is a pretty big suitcase full of money. There's a story where we were ready to receive unexpected money from the government. We had made some mistakes, and Cheryl and I had decided over time on three checks to give all that money away before it arrived. And then one day, I'm sitting in our apartment, and I get a bank statement, and I begin crying, and Cheryl rushes over to me, because it's a stressful time. We don't have any income at this time at all. And she thought, oh, man, something's gone terribly wrong. Graham, what's wrong? What's wrong? And I showed her the bank statement. And on the very same day, the three checks that we had sent out weeks apart, on the very same day, all three of those checks were cashed. It just happened to be the same day that the money that was supposed to come from the government was put into our bank account at three times the amount that we thought we were going to receive. There's the story about how we were looking for a house in Stouffville. And we had looked at about 80 houses, and we had put offers in on a couple, and we were rejected every time. And then the house that we currently live in, which was a highly desired house, it never even made it to the market because our God had arranged it for us. There's the story of me being dropped off at the wrong airport in another country, having missed the last flight of the day, only to discover that an entire flight had been held back because of engine problems. And that flight just happened to be with the same airline that my ticket was for from another airport. And that flight that just happened to be kept behind on the same airline was going to go to the exact destination that I needed it to go to. And all of those other people had to wait just so that my God could assure me again that he will never leave me. And that he will never forsake me. And my little inconsequential things matter to him. And I've got dozens, dozens more stories that have amazingly intricate details that I haven't been able to tell you today. And all of those stories exist because my God is working in partnership with me and he is working in partnership with you to bring about this mission of relationship and redemption in this world. All that I needed regularly beyond all that I could ask, beyond I could even imagine. And I'm here to tell you today clearly, don't give up. Give in. Trust him. We need to be very clear. This has nothing to do with what I want from you. This is all about what I want for you. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some big ones are the fear of scarcity, selfishness, and greed. How do we know if we love money? We never have enough, we're never satisfied with our income. The tithe is a tool to be helpful to us to break that. 
Generosity helps to counteract that. Generosity is a spiritual discipline, and our spiritual growth is enhanced and fast-forwarded when we pay attention to managing our three T's, time, treasure, talent. You need to develop generosity in all three of those areas. This discussion of finance, it's beautiful because what it does is it opens up to us our full discipleship plan. At Into One, we call that our five faith catalysts. We are here to help you grow in faith from wherever you are in relationship to faith to where it is that God is calling you to be. And in that process, you need to be reminded, don't be afraid. So we teach about money and we teach about generosity. We call that practical teaching. We practice generosity in time and treasure and talent. That's a private discipline. We interact within community and we offer ourselves to each other. And again, with a generosity in time, in treasure, and in talent. And that leads us to honor God through personal ministry. Being open to interactions and the prompting of the Holy Spirit surprises us with providential relationships. And seeing God work in us and obeying his nudging to be involved with others enables us to be involved by not involved but not alone in our pivotal circumstances. In all of these ways, God is active and interactive with us in developing your faith, in developing my faith. May this indeed be true for you today in your life. Command those rich people, hey, don't put your hope in money. It's so uncertain, but put your hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they might take hold of life that is truly life. You tried it the other way by holding and grasping and being afraid. You've tried that. That is not abundant life. That's not truly living. Try it. Trust him. Let him display for you what it is to live truly an abundant life at peace as you cast your cares and your dependence on him. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us as followers of Jesus to get this right. It's hard. We don't default to wanting to do this. We argue against it the whole time. Lord Jesus, rule in our hearts right now. Help us to get to freedom. Rule gently, but firmly. Let each of us know that we can trust you. You care for us and you long to show us that care. Break the hold of the false God of money in our lives. Break the hold that our security will be found in anything other than you. Then 
set us free to love and good deeds and to joy that come as gifts from your spirit. Dwell in us richly, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Be blessed in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You may be seated. It's better when you're here. It's better when we're together. The more we connect, the better it gets. As you go on, I want to remind you that the church doesn't stay here. The church goes where you take it. And so you're not leaving, you're being sent. And as I send you, I will remind you that we are Christ-centered, we are spirit-empowered, and we are mission-focused. We are on mission, everyone, everywhere, all the time. 